This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. Today is the final part of our series, Legacy of Faith, which has been our vision, it's been our focus as a community here at Life Church for 2016. And since we launched that at the end of February, probably about half our teaching has been to, um, focusing on this theme of legacy of faith. But if you're just jumping in today, that's okay because we'll catch you up. And a few weeks ago, I, I was asking some questions because the idea of legacy of faith is all about the idea that we've received something and then we have a responsibility in the present to pass something on for the future. And so we talked a lot in the beginning about what we've received, what that legacy looks like, what, what our, our tradition is, what the things that have come down to us, and what are the things that we need to reject, and what are the good things that we need to learn from and we need to preserve, and what are we going to choose in the present to pass on in the future. And when we think about this legacy, and we think about the legacy that faith might have in society, which I talked about a few weeks ago, we asked this question, is there space for faith? And sometimes we may feel that the answer that comes down to is, is you Christians say your prayers and leave running things here up to us. But you see, the problem is when we say our prayers as Christians, right in the middle of our prayers, we have this phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it becomes very difficult for us to abdicate responsibility for being involved in real things that are going on in the world when this is right at the centre of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And when you see a phrase like this about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, you start to ask, what would it look like? What would heaven look like in Lancashire? What would things look like if God was in charge? Oh, people start to think, well, I don't know, maybe we'd have, you know, slightly better coffee, you know. But I wonder if we think about this question a little bit deeper today. What would it look like? Because in this, these questions, we begin to develop a vision, a vision of how things could be, a vision of how things should look like. And Jesus' life and his teaching was all about showing and telling what that looks like. What does it look like? He called it the kingdom of God. It was a way of saying God becoming king, God being in charge right here. What would that look like? And as we begin to talk about that, we begin to imagine that, we begin to reflect on that, we begin to hear about that, it creates a vision for how our communities really could be. And in that vision, we find purpose. It's a thing that everybody's looking for, looking for meaning in their life and looking for something meaningful to be involved in. But as we start to get a vision, we start to see what we could do to contribute to that. And that's what we're going to talk about. And this week, and the final part of Legacy of Faith, I want to underline what we have to do. So we all leave this series and leave this year with a clear idea of what it means to pass on and what it means to have a legacy of faith in our communities. This morning, I want to talk about the task. What is this task that we've been called to be involved in, of heaven coming to earth? What does this task look like? And this is a task, firstly, that is ours by invitation, not initiation. 
I want us to read from Matthew chapter 28, because this is what Jesus charged his followers with. This is what he left them with as he called them to leave a legacy of faith on the earth. And he says this in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. This was the charge that Jesus left his followers with. This was the task that they had, but it was a task that was theirs by invitation, not initiation. Something they were invited into, not something they began. My wife is from the United States, and this week in America, they are celebrating on Thursday Thanksgiving. And uh, Thanksgiving is a festival, and like a lot of our modern festivals, there's a lot of confusion about the origin. But we think that it kind of grew out of this idea of harvest festivals that we might have had a couple of months ago here in the UK, and it's been pushed a little bit later. And this is a, a classic painting of what they call the first Thanksgiving in Plymouth in, uh, in, in the, on the east coast of the United States. And this painting is... Uh, terribly historically inaccurate. The pilgrims didn't dress like this. The Indians in this, uh, the Native Americans did not dress in this way in that part of America. This was um, first peoples from way across the continent. So it's kind of all wrong. And here we see like the pilgrims from Europe sharing food uh, with the natives. And this is kind of not quite how it worked. But what we do know, what most people accept is there was this Native American man and his name was Squanto. And this man, what he did was when the uh, Europeans who'd emigrated were failing to look after themselves, the crops they'd brought over from Europe were failing, the, the livestock were dying, they weren't able to feed themselves. What he did is he showed them how to plant indigenous crops in the indigenous soil. He showed them how to plant things like maize and reap corn. And the story goes that the first Thanksgiving was giving thanks for the first harvest. The fact that we've brought in a harvest. Now we can live because we can carry out our farming and agriculture. This is a way to sustain ourselves as a community. And it's funny because these Europeans, these white Europeans, go over to the United States and they go over there with this idea of, we're going to create a new country. We're going to create a new land. We're, we're going to start a new nation. But the reality was, it already was a nation. There was already people living there. There was already communities that have lived there for a long time and lived in harmony with the environment and began to uh, develop communities and society there. And what they had to do is they had to understand that, no, we will not survive here with our idea of we, we will just start our new thing. We will just do Europe version 2.0. But actually, this is a different land. And we're actually going to have to work out how the soil works, how the climate works, and how we can live in a place like this. And sadly, the, the Europeans didn't live in harmony with the native people. And not only Squanto, but before him, all of his tribe were wiped out, as were most of the natives. 90% of those who died, died from diseases that the Europeans brought over with them on their ships. And I just wonder if sometimes when we think about changing the world, we think about the task that we have before us, sometimes it's all about our initiative. 
And it's all about this idea of what we can do and how we think things should be and how how things could be different and what we're going to start and the projects that we're going to undertake. But the reality is God has already started it. You see, God is the first missionary. And we're invited to participate in the Missio Dei, the mission of God. God, from the story of creation onwards, has always been reaching into the world and has always been making things new. And sometimes our arrogance is going to prevent us from being involved in the task that God has for us. This isn't a task that we instigated, we initiated, but it's a task that we're invited into. You see, Jesus says this, all authority has been given to me. This is another way of him saying, like he talked about the kingdom of God, about God becoming king. He's talking about a kind of theocracy. Now, in the West, we kind of shiver when we hear that word. That, that means um, God is the king. God gives the leadership because we talk about democracy. And we prize our democracy. And when we've talked about theocracy, that often talks about God being in charge. But actually, what it really means is me being in charge. And what, whatever God says quickly becomes whatever I say. And God becomes a prop for that, and we hate this idea, and there's problems with this idea. But what God shows us, what Jesus shows us, is a different sort of way that God became king. In Jesus' time, there were, there were uh, the Romans uh, with all their uh, pomp and ceremony, and all their power and military might and impressive buildings. And there were regional kings who, who set themselves up as leaders of tribes and groups of people. And they all wielded authority by power and violence. But Jesus comes along, and Jesus becomes king by suffering violence. Jesus' authority is given by the cross. Jesus wins our allegiance by loving sacrifice. He doesn't demand it and claim it by force. And he shows us a different way. And this is so important because if we understand that we didn't instigate this task, we were invited into it, that we understand that Jesus is the prototype. We talked about this in our last series. He's the quintessential human. He is the first. He's the example. So actually, the way that we see God's authority come to earth has to be the way that Jesus brought his authority to earth. Not by force, but by loving sacrifice. This is how God becomes king. You see, we believe that this is something we've been invited into because when Jesus came, everything changed. And Jesus isn't only our example. Jesus didn't just perform some sort of technological process of salvation. Everything changed when Jesus came. People say, you know, God's on the throne. People sometimes say this, you know, when something happens in the world they don't like, you know, when there's a natural disaster, when there's an election result they're not happy with, and people say, you know, God's on the throne. But the point about that is not that we sit by and passively do nothing. If God's on the throne, that makes demands of us. That, that means we have to live that out. We have to embody it in our communities. We have to speak up for truth and justice. If God's on the throne and everything has changed, then everything must change. Because when we look around, we don't see heaven on earth. So if everything has changed with what Jesus has done, then everything has to change right here. And this task is a way of life. Jesus said that uh, we should make disciples. He said to baptize people. He said to teach them to obey. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, this is a way of life. 
Christianity is not a hobby. It's a way of life. You know, some people spend the weekend, you know, fishing or playing golf. And Christianity is not that kind of hobby. Or sometimes we, we, we take our hobbies further and they become a, a form of identity. You know, you, you don't just like motorbikes. You wear leathers seven days a week. Do you know what I mean? You, you, you don't just play golf. You know, you have the, the pleated trousers and the polo shirt on seven days a week. You know, it's like you don't just have a tattoo. You know, when you have a tattoo on your face, you're committed. You know, at that point, you're committed, aren't you? This, this is my identity. This is my way of life, you know, at this point. It's not just uh, something incidental. And, but the task is not a way of life uh, in the sense of it's a hobby. Christianity is something we do. Attending church is a pastime. It's not even a shallow identity, a badge to wear. But it's a way of life that we become disciples of, that we're baptized into, that we're taught to obey. In other words, our values and beliefs need to affect every aspect of life. If we're going to see heaven come to earth, this task means being the kind of people Jesus talked about. Teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Well, what is Jesus' teaching? I think we need to become Sermon on the Mount people. Matthew compiled this incredible sermon in his gospel of Jesus' teaching. He talks about people who were meek in a world that grasped for power. He talks about people who were merciful in a world that's vindictive. He talks about peacemakers in a world that is violent. And it's this kind of living... That brings God's rule to the earth. You see, who else is playing the piano in the prison chapel? What motivates people to do something like that? Who else except the street pastors is out working with homeless people and pubbers and clubbers on Friday and Saturday nights in the middle of the morning without being paid? Just to lift people up, just to help people get home safely, just to make sure people are okay, just to talk to people who need it. Who else is campaigning like we saw at the Jubilee 2000 Commission to drop the debt that was crippling third world countries, preventing them from ever progressing because of generations and generations of Western governments that refused to allow them to breathe and to develop? But there were the bishops, and there were the churches, galvanizing people, and billions of dollars of debt was forgiven across the world. Christianity is something that, if the task is going to be achieved, if we're going to see heaven come to earth, if we're going to see everything change, it has to be a way of life. And we have to find that not just in our Christian moment, when you're sat in that chair, when you're talking to that other person from church, when you're in that Bible study group, when you're singing a song, but no, when it comes to your work and the real faces, challenges that you face every day, and the challenges even that nations face, it has to affect and challenge us in every decision. These Sermon on the Mount people, these people like Jesus was and talked about, He talked about them being a light to the world. He talked about this radically different way where you don't just love people who love you, but you love your enemies. Because 
First John chapter 4 says, God is love. And you see, that is who God quintessentially is. That is the best description we can ever give for the divine. God is love. Therefore, this kingdom has to be a kingdom of love. Love is the why and love is the how. Love is the motivation and love is the method. Why do we do this? Because we're motivated by love. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. It helps us to see people differently. And how do we do it? How do we bring change in individuals, in communities, families, society? Love is also the how. See, this task is a task that is bigger than us. Jesus calls his disciples, as we read in our text today, Matthew chapter 28, to go to all nations. And this was strange for these young Jewish men to hear because they were all about preserving their society. They'd been attacked on all sides. They'd been oppressed and they wanted to preserve their beliefs. They wanted to preserve their religion. They wanted to keep the purity of it so that it would be pure enough for God. And here is Jesus calling them to actually carry God's message beyond and bring back the call that came to them right at the conception of their nation that they would be a light to other nations. This is something they start to wrestle with after Jesus ascends to heaven throughout the New Testament. And in Galatians chapter 5, one of the letters written to the early Christians by a man named Paul, he says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, in other words, whether you're Jewish or whether you're not, has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, a legacy of faith, expressing itself through love. It doesn't count anymore whether you're in the inbox or the outbox. What counts is your faith expressing itself through love. That's how we should think about living as people of faith in the world. Not we are the circumcised and they are the uncircumcised. No, we should think about people whose faith is expressed in love. That's the way to think about being a person of faith. Even today. And we've just got to understand that this task is bigger than us. The legacy of faith is is not that an organization continues. The legacy of faith is never the self-interested maintaining of an institution. The structure has to serve the mission. And we've got to be so careful with this stuff. Nick Spencer says this, that to allude to God... Simply in order to imply he favours me over you is to make a mockery of the idea of God as as he has been understood in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And this is the whole concept of God becoming king. It's not that, so we're okay, so unlucky for everybody else. But it's actually that God loves humanity and he wants the best for humanity. And we should be sending that message. And we, uh, the, the, the walls of our community need to be porous. And sometimes we, we're worried about people leaving, so we, we, we want to keep everything together and we want to keep the boundaries sure, but we need to make the boundaries fuzzy so that people can be invited in. When it's us and them, we'll never get what Jesus was really doing. You see, Jesus' ministry was all about challenging the us and them. He challenged the religious elites and he said, maybe you're on the outside, 
He spoke to those who were looked down on like the Samaritans and gave them dignity. And he talked about this future and he, he called them towards a way that the Spirit led the first Christians out beyond their clique, beyond their tribalism, and he led them to something else. And I think we've got to think differently about that. And I want us to reflect on that again with another film for a few minutes, that if it's us and them, if, it, if it's our group, if it's maintaining our institution, if a legacy of faith is just about ensuring that a church continues in, in perpetuity like some sort of flag in the ground, then I'm not interested in that. Because we'll do whatever it takes, you know, to preserve that, even if that means violence. But actually, if we're here to express our faith through love, and we're actually here to bring Jesus' kingdom to earth, and we're actually here so that everything will change, and we're actually here to bring good news, that's not just good for some, then I can be involved in that. And I wondered if we stopped thinking in us and them, in and out ways. We were prepared to protect our group at any cost. But instead, we showed people that there's a different way to live. The American signers might say, we could change that to a way of love. But because I want that image to sear into your mind, you might forget the words that I say, but I want you to remember those images. Because if you're a Christian, when somebody tries to make it about us or them, you stand up and say, it's us for them. So when you hear that racism, you don't let it slide. Because you're a Christian, so you have to stand up. When somebody tries to make a particular group a scapegoat, whether it's the poor, whether it's a certain industry, whether it's immigrants, whether it's people from a certain nation, whether it's women, you stand up for them. Because when they try and make it us for us or them, we say, no, 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 it's us for them. And we welcome them. And we sit down with them. And we eat with them. And the legacy of faith must look like this. You know, one of our values as Life Church, we have 12 values that define what this community is. And we put the final one there because we give it that primary importance, if you read it on the website, and it's to be a missional community, that we exist not for ourselves, but to transform the world in service to others. This is our goal, this is our mission, this is our task. This is a thing that we've been invited into. It echoes Philippians chapter 2 that says, each of you should not look to your own interests, but the interests of others. You see, because this scripture is not there to tell you what to do. Like, yeah, religious people, people of faith, Christians, they kind of do-gooders. They're supposed to be a bit less selfish, a bit less egotistical. We better do it because it's in the Bible. No, it's there because this is good for you. You see, because this community have discovered something, that joy and meaning are only found when you go beyond self-interest. Self-promotion, self-concern, that's where life really is. This is not to make us into good little boys and girls. It's to invite us into this place of joy and meaning. And we need to understand, sometimes we can be religious and then we can be institutionalized. And we need to all understand what this legacy of faith means. It means that it's less about your role in a church structure... And it's more about your influence in wider society. 
And our work is not peripheral, but it's central to the purposes of God. In our work, we can model godly character. We can make good work, minister grace and love. As Mark Green says, we can mould the culture, speak up for truth and justice, and be a messenger of the gospel. There's good news. Because of Jesus, everything's changed. So everything can change. So as we finish this series, Legacy of Faith, the legacy of faith of what we do is not defined to this building. It's not defined to what's on our website. It's not defined to the programs that this church runs. But it's the community of all of us. So I want to say thank you for leaving a legacy of faith where you are. I want to say thank you to the architects, engineers, and builders who create spaces in which we can thrive. I want to say thank you to the cleaners. That's a noble profession. Without cleaning, we would all die. But you create an environment that's healthy and pleasant. I want to say thank you to the gardeners, landscapers, and those who work in agriculture who care for the soil. I want to say thank you to the farmers and those in the food industry. We are totally dependent on you. I want to say thank you to those who work in science and technology. Not only do you give us practical solutions for life, but you inspire us to wonder. I want to say thank you to those who work in the arts, sport and entertainment. You inspire us and also give us opportunity to rest and reflect. I want to say thank you to those who work in manufacturing. You are the engine of our economy. I want, you to, I want to say thank you to those who work in business and finance. You create prosperity and opportunity. I want to say thank you to those who work in retail. You provide for our needs. I want to say thank you to those in transport. You get us where we need to go. I want to say thank you to those who work in energy and water. You sustain our life. I want to say thank you to the teachers. You pass on our collective knowledge and allow us to grow. I want to say thank you to those who work in the armed forces and defense industry. You protect our liberty. I want to say thank you to those in the emergency services. When we need you, you are always there, however challenging the situation might be. I want to say thank you to those in healthcare. You heal us. You care for us. I want to say thank you for those in civic society, politicians, civil servants, those employed by the council, local and national government. You enable us to flourish. I want to say thank you to those in journalism and broadcasting. You can speak truth and share valuable information. I want to say thank you to those in law who stand up for justice. And finally, I want to say thank you to those who work in the charitable sector and help the forgotten. You see, our work is not peripheral. It's central to the purposes of God. Would it not be strange that you would spend most of your time doing things that weren't really important so you could spend only a little bit doing things that truly were? But you see, when we do things in faith, everything looks different. I'm going to invite the band up just as we finish now. Because sometimes it can be said, look, aren't the things that we do just small and insignificant? I mean... Do they really matter on a cosmic scale? How do these acts have any value or make any difference? But haven't you noticed that small things can start a trend? Haven't you noticed that when one person changes the atmosphere, everyone can follow along in that? Haven't you noticed that often it takes somebody to do something different before somebody else follows and it becomes a movement? And haven't you noticed that Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed? Although it's the smallest, it says in the next verse. 
one of the smallest seeds, but when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants. And it becomes a tree. So that birds come and perch in its branches. And that opportunity can develop from such a small thing. You see, nothing done by faith is wasted. So when you babysit, so that couple can keep their marriage strong or that single parent can finally have a break. It's not wasted. When you set out chairs, it's, it's not wasted. When you take the time to listen to that person, even though you've got somewhere else to be, it's not wasted. When you give somebody encouragement and they really, really need it, it's never wasted. When you put in that extra work to make what you do brilliant so that it can benefit people, can make a difference to people's lives. Even when it's unseen by others, it's not wasted. But everything done by faith goes on. Resurrection affirms everything that we do. Doing it by faith means this. It's informed by what God says. Romans 10 says that faith comes by hearing. So we hear about this task. We hear about this kingdom of God. We hear about this place where everything's different. And we think, well, I could act according to that. I could live that way. I could start to live the way Jesus and his followers lived and see what would happen. So our, we, doing it by faith means it's informed by what we hear from God. It's informed by what we know about God. It's informed by revelation. But it also means that as we do it, even this thing that might seem to us small, it might seem insignificant, but we do it in faith. We have a trust and a belief that God will take what we do even when it seems small and insignificant. And like a seed in the ground, it can produce a harvest far beyond what our initial act was. We trust God that when we just do what we can do, God never asks us to give what we haven't got. But when we give what we do have in our everyday lives and we carry out our activities with intention, we trust God that, God, I'm trying to act according to what I see you're like, according to your, your love that I've heard about and received. I want to pass that on. And I'm going to believe that this is going to contribute. It's going to be involved. And by faith, it's going to be multiplied. And it's going to make a difference. And we can usher in the coming kingdom of God. Discover more about us at lifelanks.org and stay inspired by subscribing to the podcast via iTunes. Thanks for listening.